Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail, and I'm joined this week with Debbie Probst, the President of Herman Miller Retail. And I'm excited to talk about just sort of how she's dealt with all the curveballs that have been thrown her way, especially uh, working at such a, a legacy brand with uh, so many interesting brands underneath. We're just, I just want to dive right into sort of how the ni- last nine months have gone. But um, hey, Debbie, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I always like to ask people at the start, just sort of give a little bit of context about your background, because you joined Herman Miller this year. Is that correct? Absolutely. I joined in January, so I had about eight weeks with the team before we all went into <laughs> shelter in place. So it was an unusual start. Wow, that is quite quite a roll-in. <laughs> I'm just thankful I had that time on the ground with them because I've also onboarded a lot of people since then that have never actually met us in person. Wow. So um, where were you uh, before Herman Miller? Uh, prior to Herman Miller, I was with One Kings Lane, um, where I was for about eight years Um, about half of that time and merchandising and running various other functions. And then the latter half of that time um, as president of the brand. So running that full um, organization um, following the acquisition of Bed Bath & Beyond. So we were acquired by them in 2012 and I was appointed president following that. So it's obviously a very digital first brand. Yeah, Uh, We only had a very small brick and mortar presence, but I really drove the evolution from its origins as a flash sales site to a more premium position, digital first brand in the home furnishing space. Got it. And before that, you were at Abercrombie & Fitch, is that correct? I was, yes. So I've I've treated my career a little bit like a portfolio. I got some department (laughs) store experience at the start with the Neiman Marcus buying program that I went through. Then I went to vertical retail in apparel with Abercrombie & Fitch and obviously a more digital and home furnishings experience with One Kings Lane. Uh, so it's been quite a, a well-rounded experience of different retail endeavors. Yeah, it's really you've really run the gamut, and I mean it's a it's a perfect for the kind of role you're in now. Um, so why don't you just we'll go we'll get to the the six the, the after the six weeks of January when things sort of went crazy. But what was your mandate when you joined Herman Miller? What 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 did you set out to do day one? I was really set out to optimize the direct-to-consumer opportunity. Herman Miller Group is predominantly a group that's focused on what we call the contract segment, so Mm -hmm. uh, business-to-business sales um, for use of our product, predominantly in office spaces, but other hospitality and public spaces as well. And uh, retail, we believed, was a very significant opportunity in engaging a consumer directly. And so my mandate was really to... Um, build the appropriate foundation to then rapidly scale our retail opportunity across the portfolio of brands um, that we play in the direct-to-consumer space in, which is Design Within Reach, Hey, um, a Danish brand that we have a a majority acquisition in, and then um, Herman Miller's consumer segment. Got it. Uh, And so... I imagine that that all got accelerated, the the rushing of DTC as soon as coronavirus hit, because a lot of businesses closed and uh, you sort of were, were forced to talk more directly to, to the consumer. Am I incorrect? Well, absolutely. We had a lot of low-hanging fruit in our retail strategy because we had been a fairly analog strategy in the past. You know, our business was really built on the brick-and-mortar showroom mm-hmm. and the catalog And so there was a lot of opportunity, regardless of the pandemic and the sort of shift in consumer behaviors that that drove, 
um, to digitize our business model and create more of an omni-channel journey for the customer. So, you know, I, I definitely came into the role excited about those opportunities, but obviously uh, the, the shutdown in March and the pandemic that we've been living with in the subsequent months um, has really driven a dramatic shift in consumer behavior to the online channels. Uh, and we've been able to yield some quick wins to optimize that. Can you talk to me? What are some of those instant quick wins you were able to to bring in? Absolutely. I mean, the great news is we already had a um, site redesign and replatform in in the works for DWR. So we were able to launch that over the course of the summer, which really improved our our customer journey with, with that site in particular. But some of the quick wins just to optimize the immediacy of the situation driven by COVID is, for example, um, in February, we were piloting a um, video chat capability mm-hmm. um, on our website with our sales associates in our studios and stores. And we very quickly moved to roll that out to all of our stores as we started to close them in March. And that's been a very successful way to empower um, the expertise of our sales force in having a very direct and personal relationship with a customer that is maybe only comfortable shopping us online right now. So it's humanized the online journey, if you will, by having that in-person interaction that's obviously highly personalized. But the great thing about it is we can use the video to really interact with the product and showcase the customer what they want to see in that showroom environment, despite the fact that they might be sitting at home. Mm-hmm. Can you... What exactly was the breakdown before coronavirus for digital sales for a brand like DWR? Because I imagine it was going up, uh, especially since there are a lot of other uh, new, newer brands out there that sort of are online only. So what was sort of the competitive landscape and how how was that sort of growth going before all of this changed? Yeah, obviously, at the price points and the sort of positioning we have in the marketplace, uh, that in real life experience is really important. Um, what, what we shared in our last earnings call, uh, June, July, August, make up our Q1, is that our um, e-com business uh, was up triple digits yeah. over over last year, <laughs> and um, it about doubled its penetration to our total business in terms of the amount of volume being driven through um, the e-com channel. But we were able to sustain some business through our studios through this online chat capability and frankly, just the general clienteling model that we have, mm-hmm. even though our studios and stores were closed for a period of time. Can you talk, I'm fascinated by those video programs because they, they really make sense for, for a brand like yours that's at a high price point and the people really need to sort of have that direct connection with someone to, to learn. So how did, you, how did you go about implementing it? What were the must-haves for, for doing that kind of video servicing for people who are trying to make a big purchase? Well, we partnered with a third-party platform called Hero, um, who you know I highly recommend. We've had great success with them in terms of within the network of retailers that they work with. We, we have record conversion rates through that platform, and I'd say you know the first element that, of that success criteria is dependent on the capability and experience of your sales force. So you know I, I personally think we have one of the, the strongest furnishing sales forces in the industry. You know, these are highly qualified, highly passionate individuals that know a tremendous amount about our products. So product knowledge is key. Obviously, um, being very customer-centric in the type of dialogue you're having via that platform is also really important. 
and the ability to actually interact with the, the product through the video capability itself is nice. What I like about the Hero platform is it doesn't require the customer to download any specific applications. They can just th do it through whichever desktop or mobile device that they're using. And, and the second thing I like about the Hero platform is, is it's a little bit Darwinian. <laughs> so in the way that chats get allocated to our Salesforce, um, the propensity for someone to get more chats is dependent on how effective they are in that chat channel. Um, so uh, great performance gets more business. Was there a, a big retraining specifically for your Salesforce to be able to use these, these functions? It was a tremendous opportunity for us to break down what I call channel conflict. We had a lot of channel conflict in our business. You know, we, hmm. we had, a, like I said, a physical showroom strategy and we had sales associates who had, you know, their million, their $2 million books. They really wanted to own that relationship with their clients and online felt like a takeaway in some respect mm. to them. So you know, what I've been working on over the course of the, the calendar year is really dissolving that channel conflict and creating a much more omni-channel approach to how we serve the customer, not just in the sort of upfront experience and interacting with our brands, but in how we service them pre and post transaction. So walk me through how you do that, because that's a really interesting problem that I imagine that specifically when there's a business that relies on such a direct one-to-one -one relationship, usually in-person relationship. I know this salesperson at DWR. I bought my sofa there before. So how what, if they before had avoided sort of the digital channel because that wasn't that wasn't integral to to their sales how do you how do you get rid of that that channel conflict what 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 did you do well we know from customer journeys that the customer is engaging with the brand across multiple channels they may have a direct relationship with the salesperson and ultimately transact with that person but they're either doing research online they're reading our catalog so from the customer journey studies that we do on an ongoing basis we know how important a, a sort of omni-channel approach to customer communications is. There has to be consistency in the way that we approach each specific customer across all of those channels. From a salesperson perspective, uh, during the shutdown, it, it was a means to an end. And yeah. it was a way for us to drive change during a time where all of our norms were already being challenged. And our team almost became more malleable to change during that period. Um, versus a, a period in which there was no massive um, challenge to our norms. And so we, we certainly organically used that to our advantage with that team. Um, but it's really been embraced and we don't have all the answers yet. You know, we're, we're looking for different ways to um, compensate our sales force uh, based on omni-channel sales performance. Um, and certainly we want to encourage each particular store or studio to be driving traffic to our website and not just encouraging that a customer has to interact with a specific associate for sales. Interesting. So would like it seems like this is the kind of problem or I don't know if problem's the word, but, you know, equation similar to um, uh attribution like you know like digital ad attribution like figuring out where the last person that Absolutely. that customer saw so is that how you are trying to approach this sort of omni-channel dealing with sales associate problem or how like i'm, I'm fascinated because it's such an interesting model well attribution multi-channel attribution is such a huge data unlock in this digital economy um i spent a lot of time working on this at one king's lane and we're in, you know, in the process of working on it at herman miller 
Um, understanding the role that each channel plays in the customer journey allows you to make the right investment decisions in terms of how you allocate your marketing budget. And so it's hugely important. Uh, so many digital or um, omni-channel brands are still using a last touch or last click attribution mm -hmm. model, which means potentially the wrong channel is getting credit for the sale yeah. and then we're allocating incorrectly. So um, this, this is a major opportunity for us and a, and a big unlock in, in retail in general. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And so you mentioned sort of the the quick wins or the low hanging fruit that you that you went for uh, as soon as the lockdowns begin. What have sort of been the more longer tail, bigger projects that either you you've been tackling or have tackled? What what's been on on your docket now? Well, I came into my role in January really excited about the opportunity to grow our market share with our ergonomic seating. So this is the, the product category that's the bread and butter of Herman Miller Group. We manufacture ourselves or fully vertical. You know, we spend years designing each and one of our ergonomic chairs um, or other products for um, the home office environment. And we have decades of research around the benefits of these products. And some of the learnings I had over the last couple of years um, in, the, in the sleep categories specifically is how important it is to go to market with a set of um, customer promises. Here are the benefits that you will yield if you use this product. And of course, in sleep, that was all about articulating the importance of having a great night's sleep the particular impacts on your well-being that that will, that will yield for you. And then, by the way, here are all our products to help you ascertain a great night's sleep. Um, and when you market that way, the, the sort of appetite for spending on the category is much more than just about creating a pretty bed. Um, and so there's a similar story for us to lose in the ergonomic seating space. The importance of having a great posture while you work is so critical. Um, it lowers your resting heart rate. It lowers your stress level. That, by the way, helps you sleep better. Um, and it improves your cognitive output when you're sitting in a chair that supports you and moves with you versus you know, a static wooden dining chair that so many of us have probably been sitting on for the last six or so months. Um, and so going to market with a, a new perspective around uh, the customer benefits of ergonomic seating was something I was excited about pre-pandemic. Um, because the world cares so much now about our health and well-being and about our mental performance. Um, and uh, the world was already moving towards distributed work models. You know, what the last seven or so months has taught us is that you can be both a remote worker and an office worker simultaneously. Um, I think that though the world was already moving to a lot more of a work from home environment with the improvements in digital technology, helping us communicate more seamlessly and with the on demand economy, meaning more people could work from home. That was already happening. So I was excited about the opportunity to um, drive a new direct to consumer strategy for our core ergonomic seating. Of course, we've expedited the execution of that strategy based on this current moment in time. Um, and we just launched the first two of a series of test locations um, to showcase our performance seating in that whole new way, speaking to the wellness and health benefits and the performance benefits of using our chairs while you work. So our first location opened in Century City a few weeks ago. Uh, we opened Hudson Yards about 10 days ago, and we have Tokyo and Austin Texas upcoming in December. I'm 
very excited you mentioned that because I want to talk about these new locations. But I'd love to first go into sort of that consumer-focused messaging because uh, with ergonomic chairs, that makes a lot of sense. But I also imagine that companies like Herman Miller in the past, uh, ergonomic chairs are expensive and they rely on businesses to buy them sort of in bulk for companies. And so so how do you give – has there been a lot more pressure on you specifically growing out a DTC channel, figuring out ways to sort of really be able to grow this sort of one-to-one, one one, consumers can buy this, you can have this in your your house or apartment sort of, um, situation? The consumer demand for this product has definitely increased. And what we have found is most consumers have never had to think about this type of product purchase before, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've relied on procurement teams or ergonomic specialists who've decided what chair you sit on while you're working. Yeah. And now consumers are having to make that decision for themselves. You know, certainly, I think the organizations that have accommodated distributed work models the best are still supporting their employees in some way, either through stipends or support in purchasing um, these types of product for home. And, and we've set up the appropriate um, mechanisms to engage with our organizations that want to do that for their employees. But most consumers that come into one of our physical locations right now, even during the pandemic, are coming in because this this is a um, expensive purchase. It's one that's well worth it, but it's also one that they've never really purchased before. And so understanding all the different features and benefits of each specific chair and, and uh, based on the particular need or use case of each individual customer, you know, that the, the purchase decision they make may, be, may be different. And so it's really important to have that experience and being able to interact with someone on the product. Given that uh, you're you're growing out this DTC business, can you talk a little about where you've been pouring gasoline in terms of marketing? Are you investing a lot in performance marketing or trying to reach new customers or sort of how are you approaching that, that entire landscape? It's really about the omni-channel journey. And as I already said, making sure that we're engaging with the audience where they want to engage um, and making sure we have sort of campaign approach to how we communicate across our channels. Uh, but personalization is also really important as we think about the future opportunities of marketing, making sure we have the appropriate funnels in place as we're acquiring new customers during this time where people are really gravitating towards our workspace product is also really important right now. Are there any that are specifically either overperforming or are there any channels in the omni-channel strategy they're doing well? Are you finding a lot on Instagram or are you sort of how, what's been working to specifically get new customers in? You know, it's anecdotal at this point, um, but uh, we're seeing a lot of success with the Instagram channel and driving traffic to our, our new stores. Um, you know, it's really easy to geo-target on that platform mm -hmm. and you can target very specific sort of customer demographics and lookalikes. And so uh, that seems to be a nice traffic driver for us right now. Got it. And so let's talk about the stores. Have these stores always been in the roadmap? Was it was sort of the idea that you were going to have these these very specific new showrooms launched? Or was this uh, as a reaction to the last nine months, the coronavirus and sort of new shopping patterns? Yeah, it was a it was a big strategic idea uh, that was already sort of on the cards for the organization. As I said in January, I came in very excited about pursuing this idea, um, and we've obviously moved faster than we could have possibly imagined. I mean, you, you can imagine the challenge of finding locations, vetting them, signing leases. Um, designing and installing these locations without most of us having set foot in them because of the travel restrictions we have right now. Um, 
just the sheer planning around the installation and the fact that we're so limited in the, the capacity and number of people we can have in each location at any given time. It was sort of a round-the-clock effort to get these stores set up for our opening deadlines. Um, so, you know, we've certainly, I'd say, moved mountains to, to do it quickly and, and get this in the works while there's a tremendous amount of organic demand. But this is a, a retail experience that I feel has legs well beyond the pandemic. And ultimately, during this time where most of us have been working from home, we've, we've created new habits. It only takes 30 days to make a habit. And we've been at this <laughs> well over that by now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I believe that we are going to um, feel great about getting back into office environments when the time comes, but that working from home will, will become more of a staple in our lives. And so people will need this type of product long after, long after our vaccines. Absolutely. So what you, you mentioned the moving mountains, I'm sure it was very difficult to, uh, to get these in place while mostly remote, but I imagine all, like now is probably a good time to find real estate. Was, was it, was it, was it, was it easier than you expected specifically to find new spaces or were the, were the leases more lenient given that there's so much uncertainty? Uh, you know, I'd say this, like if you're going to be picky about where your brand shows up, it, it's not much easier, right? <laughs> like we were really considerate about our adjacencies. So we were not opportunistic about finding real estate. We were still very strategic about it. Uh, the, the big difference in the adjacencies that we're going after with this brand versus how we might have gone to market in the past is, you know, we're not sitting next to other home furnishing stores. We're sitting next to brands that people have an affinity to because they care about their personal performance or the performance of the products they use. So whether that's next to a Lululemon or an Apple, um, that's a very different strategy from a, for us than the strategies we might have pursued as far as real estate goes in the past. And can you talk a little about just the the actual physical planning of these retail stores? You mentioned that you know their the capacity plays into it. There are so new restrictions. We don't know exactly what's what's going to happen for the next few months, as long as six months or longer. So how did like how do you go about what are short term plans for opening up a new space and what are long term that will last hopefully post pandemic? So they're small format stores. They're about twelve to fifteen hundred square feet, and that's really what's driving the capacity. Um, challenges that we have to work around right now. Um, you know, we can fit seven seven people in the store at any given time. And so handling an install with that type of restriction was definitely challenging. From a customer perspective, though, I will say it sets a nice experience for the customer. Having an ergonomic fitting with one of our performance specialists is about a 30-minute process to do it properly. And it really gives us the opportunity in those smaller format stores with the limited capacity right now to really focus on a specific customer and, and really give them an in-depth experience um, with all the various chairs that we sell. You know, certainly we created uh, protocols and, and we've been using those protocols in our, our design within reach studios and hay stores over the course of the um, spring and summer. We, we defined protocols in the service model that are established based on the current CDC requirements or recommendations. Um, but the, the biggest element I'd say that we developed specifically because of COVID safety that I think carries us into the future is the digital integration in the stores. So making sure that if a customer doesn't feel comfortable engaging directly with an associate because of safety concerns, 
that they can use their own device to navigate through the space and really learn about the products in a rich way. So using QR codes all over the space to give the customer access to content videos and you know a digital version of a product fitting uh, was really important. But given the sort of unique omni-channel world that we live in now, I, I think that that's an important aspect of physical retail go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, certainly some of the safety protocols we've developed will hopefully be, be short term, like our six foot distancing requirements. But some of those other elements that we developed because of COVID concerns will, will be long lasting. Are, do the new stores, do they operate via reservations or can people walk in? Right now, they're more or less walk-in. We've gone to a reservation system a couple of times on Saturdays where we've had people sort of queuing up outside just so that they can go away and come back and they don't have to wait. And and the customers have been appreciating that approach. And so, you know, it's it's still very early on. One has only been open for 10 days. But what how are you seeing the reception? Has there been, you know, has there been any reticence for people to to go back into stores or are they like operating differently? Are they much more intentional when they walk in? If they're going to go to Herman Miller, that means they're actually going to buy a chair. What are you witnessing? We're seeing customers come to the physical locations across all three of the brands at, at a different point in their customer journey. There is basically no browsing that happens right now. <laughs> you know, you've been to a store a hundred times and, and someone's asked if you need help and you say, I'm just browsing. That doesn't happen at the moment. Uh, people are going in at the end of their customer journey. They've done all of their research online. They're just going in to validate that they made the right decision online. And so conversion rates in stores are particularly high right now. Got it. And so now that you have these these stores that have opened and a few that are going to open soon, what are your goals for now for going into you know, the first quarter of 2021, what, 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 what's on the horizon for you in terms of Herman Miller's DTC growth? It's really about learning from the customer and staying acutely aware of how customer demands change during this time period. And we have seen a huge amount of change in customer demand, not just in ergonomic product, um, but our homes are doing double duty for us right now. They're having to, um, they're having to operate for us in ways we've never asked our homes to operate. So, storage categories, outdoor furniture, you know, these categories have seen huge spikes in interest as well. So staying aware of these sort of rapid changes in consumer needs is really important and leaning into that with our content strategies. Got it. And so would you give, has the the acceleration of DTC been able to make up for any losses on more of the B2B side? Or is there plan sort of, what do you see the mix in terms of how how consumer-facing sales are going to go compared to all the other facets of the business? Well, I encourage you, know, you and your audience to review our, our Q1 earnings. We're uh, a couple weeks away from our Q2 earnings. <laughs> so certainly we share um, the sort of, uh, segment mix in that setting. Um, we, we are really pleased with how we've been able to weather this storm because we are in multiple channels, because we have the fulfillment and distribution capabilities to serve a consumer directly. That, that has definitely helped us get through the, you know, the, the challenging spring and summer period. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you mentioned that you're focusing on, like that you're sort of learning from the customer and f- trying to engage with them both in content or not. Can you add just a few examples of, of things you're hoping to work on or new new focuses that might be on the horizon? 
Well, one of the things that we've done over the spring and summer months, specifically for the Design Within Reach brand, is really soften the way that we um, look and feel as a brand so that we can Mm -hmm. be more relatable. You know, we used to showcase a lot of museum-like homes that don't look lived in. And, And we've used this time period to really transition into much more realistic, livable, modern homes. And in the end of the day, uh, modern is an ethos, um, not actually a design style. It's a way of living. And uh, with it sort of shifts in demands on our homes right now, a way of living, it looks very different today than it did 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sh- showing ourselves as much more realistic and relatable and uh, more human has been an important shift that we've been making. And, and we look to do more of that as we move into the into the cool winter months and beyond. Absolutely. All right, Debbie, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the support. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.